time now for another Pinball Profile. I'm your host, Jeff Teolis. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. And please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you really want a great history lesson, may I suggest you get the latest copy and all the back copies of Pinball Magazine. Why? This is one of the greatest collections of information you can find anywhere, and it's timeless, and the editor and creator joins us right now. Once again, let's say hello to Jonathan Justin. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm good, and I hope you're doing well, too. I am fine. Thank you for asking. I am so impressed with Pinball Magazine number five. It uh, just came out not too long ago. Got my copy. And magazine, I've said this to you before, is really not the word you should call this because this is an encyclopedia and it is so well done. First of all, bravo to you. And you know, I always joked with you about, boy, when's the next one coming out? When's the next one coming out? I now know why it took so long for this one to come out because there's so much information in it. Well, yeah, about the name, yeah, it's sort of a uh, a misnomer, I guess. I thought about changing the first A in magazine to an E, but it looked so weird, so I figured, now let's stay with magazine, but it could be called a magazine if you want to. It is a magazine for sure. It's double the last size, and uh, really, there is so much great content in there, and it has to come from somewhere, and the feature article is on Gottlieb's great designer, Wayne Nans, who created 180 different games, 159 of them went to production over uh, 1949 to 1965, and yes. you have covered almost every single one of them with the help of Wayne, who you visited on two different occasions. Yes, uh, so I have to be very appreciative to Wayne for, first of all, being willing to talk to me. Well, actually, I should say, first of all, for still being alive. I mean, it's... Get this, the man just turned 100, and he's still here, and he is in formidable shape. I, seriously, the guy is still living on his own, he's still driving a car, and he's still stubborn as he always was, apparently. So, I have to be appreciative for Wayne for still being here, although that's probably not something that's in my hands. But then again, he was willing to talk to me, and he's such a great guy. Really, there's no way to describe what a great guy Wayne Nyans is. And I think everybody that has been in the uh, good fortune to, to meet Wayne and to talk to him will probably say the same thing. So I made it two visits uh, over a two-year period. I think the first time I visited was in 2015, and the second time was 2017. The visits were around the Texas Pinball Festival. So the first time I went to Wayne after the Texas Pinball Festival, and the second time I went prior to the Texas Pinball Festival, and actually I was planning to bring Wayne, but he was like, no, no, we're not going to do that. And he was apparently so afraid that I was serious that he was like, no, 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 let's not do it. But it's an eight-hour drive for him, and I, um, I can't see why a 100-year-old would not look forward to an eight-hour drive. Although... I'm pretty sure once he would have been there, I'm pretty sure he would have loved it. Well, especially now for a lot of the younger players that have never really known who was behind all these great Gottlieb games. I mean, we certainly know all of the current designers, but you know, to go back into history like you did and just to think about this, put things in perspective, the games he did, the 159 that went to production, sold over 200,000 copies. And he was doing, for a 10-year period, almost a title a month. So can you imagine that? You see how designers work nowadays, and obviously they're more complex, but 
The thing that amazed me when I was reading this in Pinball Magazine, Jonathan, was the detail of how he created these because he didn't have the resources that we have today and how he created from scratch every aspect of the pinball machine. It was fascinating and you certainly covered it. And then there's another thing that I think, uh, well, well, I hope that the magazine will showcase. Every game had to be different than the previous one. I mean, if we look at pinball now, except for uh, Wheel of Fortune, every pinball machine from the last 20 years, possibly even 30 years, has what we call an Italian bottom, which means that you have the, the layout of the outlane, inlane, uh, you have a flipper, a slingshot above it, and on the other side of the playfield, it's exactly the same uh, in the other direction. Wayne didn't do that in the sense that he had to change things up because the distributors would be complaining like, ah, oh, these games are all the same. So he literally had to change things up, which resulted in very interesting games where he was like, okay, why don't we do the whole pop bumper section at the bottom of the play field? And then you get a game where, where he has the flippers above three pop bumpers and you, 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 you get a game that's so unusual, but that's unthinkable now. So in, in a sense, what I tried to do was I wanted to include every game that he made uh, with a photo in the preferably in the same perspective as all other photos so that you actually could take a look at the playfield and see like they were actually very different from each other than what he was doing the previous games. I noticed that too. I mean, you can see on some of his designs, you know, the big gaps or you talked about the current Wheel of Fortune, uh, those kind of uh, inlanes at the bottom. There was certainly that and, and I'm sure Wayne was a big influence on that. The big gaps that you saw, but uh, all the different designs were just unreal and you were able to kind of capture that. You had a lot of the photos from some of these games, but I think you told me that when you visited Wayne, he had these great folders too with all the flyers of the games. That's so amazing that he has these. Right. So the first time I visited Wayne uh, and we wanted to go over the game, I explained to him, like, what I'd like to do is talk about every game that you designed. And he was already like, well, I'm not sure I remember everything, but... And then he pulls out this big folder with all these, the flyers of these games, the, the, the sales brochures, if you want to call them that. They're all in, um, in this folder in sheet protectors. Uh, these were all single sided flyers. So he has one on each side of the, uh, he's two in a single sheet. And, and we start flipping through discussing every game that he designed. But the thing is, while the flyers are great, and, and it's a great collection that he has, but you can't barely see anything of the game on them. Uh, especially these Gottlieb flyers all had sort of like the same format where you see the, the game in a th sort of three-quarter type of shot, but half of it is like drawn in pencil with a photo behind it. So it's, it's not very clear. So what I did the second time when I visited Wayne was I borrowed a, a projector from Ed Vanderveen of the Texas Pinball Festival. Thank you, Ed. And in the meantime, I had been visiting several museums, like the Pacific Pinball Museum. I had visited Randy Peck. I had visited the Paris Pinball Museum. And all these places have a large collection of games that were designed by Wayne Nyans. So everywhere that I went, I took pictures of those games. I had to organize all that. And I took the best picture, which eventually ended up in the magazine. But when I went to Wayne for the second time... I took the projector and instead of leaving through uh, the folder of flyers, 
I projected every game life-size on the wall in his living room so that he could actually take a good look at what the game looked like. That life-size must have helped him kind of recall, certainly. I mean, we're talking about a man who's just turned 100 years old and with all those different games, I can't imagine it's easy to remember, you know, what you did for each one of them. If you've only designed a few, yeah, you can probably remember every process, but uh, that definitely had to help. And and you've covered that in the magazine so well, too, as uh, Wayne describes each game. I, I love some of his games, and I've been fortunate enough to play certainly not all of them, but many of them. And it's a real treat when you see great collections, I think, of Clay in Michigan and his VFW hall that has so many of these older games. And I think of games like Jockey Club and North Star. I always look forward to playing these games, and it's a real treasure for anyone who owns these games to preserve these. I imagine you're just as big a fan as well. Um, I love playing these games. Um, It's always, if you come across them, hoping that they are in uh, good preserved condition and that they are playing well. Not everybody knows how to maintain a game, and sometimes with these EM games, if you get these pop bumpers that are just or flippers where you barely get the ball half of the way up the play field, obviously that's not fun. But that's also not how they were supposed to be playing back in the day. You know, these flippers were, they used to be powerful. So if you get a, um, uh, one of these games in really good condition, then you actually can see that they're actually way more fun to play than some people currently give them credit for. The interesting thing, what I also try to uh, emphasize in the magazine is that when Wayne was designing uh, his games, there was a completely different objective in the game than what we have today, in the sense that there were several ways to win replays, and the goal was basically to score as many replays as possible in different ways. But keep in mind that this guy only had to work with a couple of flippers, a couple of bumpers, a couple of dead bumpers, a slingshot, one, two, three, maybe a few more, a couple of rollover buttons, a couple of targets, that's about it. And try to come up with something every month again to keep the factory going because that's basically what he did. If he didn't have a design, then everybody in the factory was screwed and everybody chained into that, like suppliers and so on. They also had no business. So there was a huge responsibility for him. We talked about that in the magazine as well. But then imagine just being so creative so he would come up with a new game every month like it was nothing to him. Do you know what, Jonathan? I talk to artists who create masterpieces, and it can be something like literature, art pieces, songs. And when you ask an artist to create something, the timelines don't always line up. So the pressure that he had to do this on a monthly basis for Gottlieb to, as you say, keep people employed and to turn it over, it just doesn't work that way for an artist because... You can have a burnout factor. And like you said, he didn't have the technology back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that we have now today to create these specials. So that's the thing that jumped out to me. The games are amazing, but the turnout that he did this over such a long period of time and the volume that he did, I cannot imagine the pressure to do this and to be different and unique. It just doesn't usually work that way for artists, but Wayne did it. Yeah, so he he really deserves... A lot of credit and I'm happy to give it to him and I hope that he gets the recognition that he I think deserves you know and and let's not forget it Gottlieb was when Wayne was designing Gottlieb was the number one pinball company period but they stayed that for like I think 30 to 40 years it was only when Gottlieb went into solid state 
that they were beaten by the other companies. Prior to that, it was just godly. Yeah, that's true. I don't want to downplay uh, Bally or Williams, but in terms of production numbers, even the big collectors tell me that if Williams had a hit game, then they still godly would outsell them probably two to three times in the numbers of that hit game that Williams had. Um, and for Gottlieb, that would be a regular run, nothing special. So th- th- just to indicate how uh, strong Gottlieb's presence in the market was at that time. I think of how innovative he was. And we have designers now with all these programs that can certainly help lay out the geometry, the physics of the game. That's not how he did it. And he had to physically create absolutely every aspect. That blows my mind. He basically had to take a piece of wood and um, his, his drawing material. And if he was like, okay, I want to have a hole here, then he had to drill a hole in it and make sure that it worked. And if it was off, then he had to replace it, take a new piece of wood, do everything all over again. And that's how he made the games. But the interesting thing is, and he also describes that in, in the magazine, that usually he was such a, a brilliant guy, I would say. While he was working on one game, he already had ideas for the next game coming up in his head. And he had a sketchbook where he kept... He wrote down all of his ideas, so in in a sense that helped him, I guess, because he never was short for an idea for the next game. He always had ideas, and even when he was, uh, I don't know, driving on the countryside or taking his family to a museum or whatever, he was constantly thinking about coming up with new ideas for new games. Did he ever sleep? Oh, yeah, I I, I guess he did, but he probably dreamt pinball. I think. I mean, just the volume, you're right. I mean, he'd have to. I mean, it's very impressive what he uh, what he did, and it's funny to see how he passes it off as like, ah, oh, well, it was just a job. That's so funny. He left such a legacy, and he's so humble about it. Imagine you or I doing some of that. We'd be bragging about it all the time. He did 180 of them, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, over a period of over, well, a little more than, than 15 years. But still, it is very, very impressive. Of course... You can't compare uh, designing a game back then with uh, designing a game now. Imagine Steve Ritchie cranking out a game every month. But I can't imagine anyone for that matter. Just, uh, again, the way games are now, I I think it's certainly different. I mean, I guess if you had to, you could. But to make it different, boy, I I, I don't know. And and he certainly did with what he had available. It makes you almost wonder, can you imagine? uh, Did you ask him at all about if you were to design a game now, what it would be like? I mean with all the tools and all the different toys and things you could do? I'm not sure whether he actually would dive into that. I think if he would design a game right now, I think he'd probably still do something that's close to what he used to be doing. Obviously because he missed the whole evolution of pinball in, in the, that went on in between when he was designing games and where we are now. I mean, he would probably still go uh, draw a, a full-size Mylar because he is not used to working on a computer with, uh, what's that program called, AutoCAD. He would still do it old school, I guess. And he would just try to see, like, how can I create a great game on this wooden board, on this wooden play field? I think he'd, he'd go for that. Actually, I think if he would want to, I think Wayne could currently be a, um, a very successful redemption game designer if he wants to. Oh, for sure. Because a lot of his games are intended to be not lasting very long, and uh, especially 
if you look at the games that he did in the days when the objective was winning as many uh, free plays as possible, if you convert that to winning as many tickets, then I think he knocked them out of the park and he completely dominated the redemption market. Maybe I should suggest that uh, to him. (laughs) I wonder what it was like for the distributors when they got a new game from him, how much the theme mattered. Because, you know, there's certainly a lot of um, pool-type themes, a lot of horse racing themes. There's a great basketball one. I wonder what mattered to the distributors back then when a new game came out from Wayne and Gottlieb. Um, It's a good question. I can't answer that because I wasn't a distributor back then. But what's interesting to see is that although Gottlieb didn't do any licensing, they certainly tapped into pop culture at that time with a couple of games like uh, Lovely Lucy, which was um, a very clear sort of based on the uh, I Love Lucy TV show that was going on at that time. And, of course, they changed it so that it wasn't based on the show, but everybody understood that there was a connection. And they did that with a couple of uh, couple of games, especially around 1954. And um, it's very interesting to read about that. Also, that nobody ever thought about could we get sued. At that time, nobody cared. Now... You're right about pop culture and whatnot. I mean, look at Pioneer and Spirit of 76, and those games definitely related to what was going on at the time. I even think of other games, too, that weren't even about really pop culture, but just, again, something that it was a design, an idea that he came up with that we've since seen several times. I think of Squarehead, the tic-tac-toe, add-a-ball game. So we see a lot of add-a-ball games, but... I mean, the squarehead, we see X's and O's, we see Mystic and, and things like that. And uh, you have to kind of tip your cap to Wayne Nans for creating squarehead to really bring this to the forefront. Exactly. So the man has a legacy. And at the moment, not that many people know about it. Hopefully the magazine will change that. Oh, I definitely think so. And I've heard some of the other podcasters, I think the Pinball Podcast talked about the Mount Rushmore of pinball and who would go on that and that's a tough one to say if you had to pick four people that were the most influential in pinball i'm sure you after interviewing them twice and and seeing what we're seeing in pinball magazine you've got to put wayne in your top four probably yes and harry williams for sure as well oh i agree and after that i'd really have to give it um i'd have to give it some thought to to think about who would be the other two but wayne nyans and um and harry williams for sure and you might even you might have some discussion whether Wayne whether it should be Wayne or whether it should be Dave Gottlieb because uh, Harry Williams of course was also a, a company owner and Dave Gottlieb owned the Gottlieb company um, but he was such a charismatic man he did so much for the industry that he probably deserves to be up there as well. That's interesting. You know, I I'm, I'm not going to agree or disagree because I really haven't put much thought into it. Don't want to make an opinion now that would you know be on this podcast forever as people listen maybe down the road. You know, my podcasts aren't really about the news of the week. They're more kind of like an audio version of your pinball magazine in a way of like this is you know we're talking to somebody about a specific thing and it's it's kind of timeless. So I, I don't know who I'd put in there whether I'd put Dave Gottlieb in there or Wayne because you said you know he's the owner of the company, but is the owner as important as the designer or were they the front person? In case of Dave Gottlieb, I think um, the, those who know how Dave was and the way he run his uh, company, they would probably say, yes, he should definitely be up there because he was very different than business owners that we see today. He was actually out on the floor every day when he was in, in the factory. He knew everybody in the factory. He knew their personal stories. He was very caring for uh, for his staff and he had a neck 
for picking the right people to work in uh, in the company. And there's uh, stories about that that Wayne is telling uh, in the magazine as well. So there's another reason for people to to just dive in and, and get familiar with who Dave Gottlieb was. Your website is pinball-magazine.com. You can order that magazine, back issues as well. I highly recommend it because this is a great keepsake for sure. Also in the current article, you've got articles on another up-and-coming designer who's done pretty well from the get-go in Scott Denisi. Right. What did we learn from Scott from your interview? Well, I think one of the reasons, or let me tell you why I wanted Scott to be in there. Um, What I usually try to do with the articles in an issue of Pinball Magazine, I try to find a common ground for uh, articles that they sort of have in common with each other. And in the case of Scott, Scott designed obviously just one game so far. But besides uh, designing the playfield, he also programmed the game and he did the music for it. He programmed the light shows and everything. And in that sense, he's a lot similar to Wayne Nyans because Wayne was not just designing a playfield, but he also designed the circuitry of the game. So Scott's a renaissance man. I guess, yes. And uh, the fact that he has his, his, his uh, hand in everything, that sort of was for me like the common ground and the, the reason to include Scott. Plus that, I think personally, Total Nuclear Annihilation is a killer game. I agree 100%. Take that, Bruce Nightingale. It is a great game and everybody who owns it loves it. And I, I heard Ron Hallett recently say on Slam Tilt, <laughs> podcast that you know he owns this game and he was streaming it and he's getting to reactor six and he's he's sweating while he's doing this i know what that's like i, I haven't well sorry i don't know what it's like to get to reactor six but uh you know when i get lucky and get up to five it's intense and that's that's something you don't see in a lot of newer games it's different right it's unique for sure i don't know how it's not a game for everyone but you know teach their own um it, it certainly not as deep as some of the other games so i'll give you that but as far as fun from the get-go, from the plunge, from the music, from the, the locks, the just if you're playing multiplayer, there's just so many things about that game I love, and, and you covered a lot of it in Pinball Magazine with Scott Denisi. Right, and uh, I think what you just said here, uh, there's one thing that's very critical when it comes to both Wayne Nines games and Scott Denisi's Total Nuclear Annihilation, and that is capture fun. It doesn't have to be a deep game, because you can have a game that is as deep as a phone book, or as deep as Pinball Magazine, if you want. <laughs> but <laughs> but if it's no fun, then why would people play it? The first key ingredient should be, it has to be fun. Then you can make it deep. But the game won't be any more fun if you make it as deep as whatever, if it's not fun in the first place. It is interesting that you say that, because I don't know what the marketing strategy is for pinball companies, and I don't pretend to know either. I don't know where the main source of sales comes from, whether it's a home collector, maybe looking for a deeper game because they're going to want to keep it for a while and not be tired of it. Or are we seeing more of these barcades pop up that has now dominated sales? I don't know what the percentage is, and I have no idea. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I think in all sales, you're right. The games have to be fun for someone to purchase them. Right, because what happens if you have a game that's no fun? It can be deep as The Hobbit, and I don't want to say that The Hobbit isn't a fun game, but nowadays, if the theme isn't appealing to you, you might still have a go at the game, but if you don't enjoy it, then you're not going to play it again. That's true. And you're not going to buy it either, you know. And the next time someone says, hey, I got a Hobbit, you want to play it? 
Uh, and again, sorry for picking on The Hobbit, but I could have... There's a dozen games out there that I can think of that I'm like, yes, they have a lot of depth, but are they really that much fun? And sure, I can see that tournament players would be very happy. Oh, and there's a, a tons of way to do different strategies and all that. But if it's no fun, then I don't even care about finding that out. You know, I just want to have a good time when I play pinball. It sounds very simple, but the pinball used to be a sort of like escape from the current world and just lock yourself into a game for two, three minutes and forget about your troubles and just focus on banging a ball around. Then you have to find a way to make that fun. It's not just like, oh, we have a steel ball or we have a couple of flippers. You flip it up and that's it. No, that's not, then there's no game. And that's one of the key things that Wayne did and also what Scott did. And I seriously hope that Scott, now working on his second game, keeps in mind that don't lose the ball in the sense, keep make sure that the game is fun and everything else will come after that. My feeling is Scott will do a great job on game number two for Spooky. So Scott and Wayne have a connection there. Both designers kind of create everything. There's one more connection that Scott has with Wayne. And that I didn't put that in the magazine, but I'd love saying it out loud here. When Wayne was designing games at Gottlieb, the other companies were copying him. Scott Denise designed one game for Spooky and the biggest company that we have that's been around for 30 years that keep blowing their own horn saying that they're here for 30 years. They're copying Scott Denise. In what sense? Well, have you played Deadpool? I've played Deadpool, yeah. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of references to that that are clearly inspired on the success of Total Nuclear Annihilation. The humor that Scott uh, tried to put into the game and the simplicity that they tried to put in that game as well. And I can't say anything about future games, but I wouldn't be surprised if within a couple of months we get a single level uh, Sturm game with no ramps and all that kind of stuff. So, Oh, I definitely think that'll happen very soon. Editor note, this was recorded before the Beatles came out. But Jonathan, I don't see the connection only because I definitely know that Scott's game is very humorous and, and when it does the uh, different mystery things that you can get, that's very, very funny and some of the other things that he's put in the game. Just the reason I might disagree is that Deadpool, who you've recently come to know uh, from your recent flights, watching the movies and maybe following some of the uh, comics, he's always been a very break-the-fourth-wall, sarcastic, funny-as-heck, almost R-rated character. So the humor has kind of always been there for Deadpool. So I personally don't make that connection, but maybe there's something else you saw. Well, there's a couple of references in the game that if you listen carefully, uh, I mean, there's a... uh, um you know about the Bowen Carroll's remark in, in Total Nuclear Annihilation, and then Deadpool comes up with the Keith Elwin remark. How is that not copied from <laughs> Total Nuclear Annihilation? I, I didn't make that connection, but uh, okay, if you, if you think so. I, I mean, and probably others do too. I just... Uh... And, and, and seriously, Scott does a game with all this electronic music, and aside from Tron... I don't think Stern would ever do a game with dubstep. And now, in Deadpool, it's dubstep all over. And yes, I get it. It was in the movie as well. And But still, it's not a music type that, that a company like Stern would easily associate themselves with, you know. Because they're more, they tend to go with the rock bands. And with Tron, sure, they had to go with the Daft Punk album because that's the, the movie soundtrack. But other than that, none of the music in previous Tron games was like that modern as we've seen in Deadpool. So in that sense, Scott Denise is breaking a barrier for innovation in pinball, I'd say, if you can call it that. Now, I've heard the saying where imitation is 
one of the greatest forms of compliments ever. <laughs> Some right. might say borrowing, stealing. I, you know, let's be honest. Uh, Jersey Jack came out with Wizard of Oz, this great big LCD screen that people are in love with. Everyone now goes LCD screen. So is that stolen or is that just a great idea? You know, you, you can decide. Well, Jack wasn't the first, but he was the first big company to do it. I think Who is the first? Uh, that was actually a Spanish company uh, that did a game called New Canasta. And that was only shown at a couple of shows in uh, in Europe, I guess. Uh, it was a remake of a game from 1986, but that already had an LCD in the back uh, box and the camera. So it would take your picture if you had a high score. And that was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, two, three years before the, the Wizard of Oz. But it's not important. I think the LCD is... A well, it's very difficult to sell a, a dot matrix game right now if you have competition using LCDs, and so it's a, a matter of technical progress, I would say. I know you're a fan of Stern Pinball too, because Gary Stern was in the article, and uh, they promote Pinball Magazine as well. So I, I know you're not certainly taking shots, but I it might just be a, a form of a compliment. Who knows? I mean, could be ripped off. You just never know. I, I'm not there. Well, I'm 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 not to uh, uh, to 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 stab at Stern. Um, I've been talking to Stern management for for years, and I think the biggest obstacle with going to LCD was not so much the the, the implementation of putting an LCD in there. That's the easy part. The difficult part is you need to get content to fill the LCD, and for in order to do that, you need a staff of people. And it took Stern quite some time to do it right, in the sense that you need a lot more people to get the content for an LCD screen than you need for a dot matrix display. It's easier to use footage from things like the Batman 66 TV show or the Guardians movie where you're on something like Iron Maiden or Deadpool where you have to create the content. So that makes it a little more difficult. But look at what they did with Aerosmith. Aerosmith is a great example that, that they, they had to create everything, all those videos of the band singing these songs, they had to create that. And they're even, the Steven Tyler character or the, the, whatever you want to call it, it's even the lips are synced with the music. So they took time to make sure that it was right. But that's something that previously for a dot matrix game, they never would have to worry about that because they would have done it differently. Now they need this this content and there's a lot of time that goes into developing that content. But also in case of Guardians or Batman, you need a separate license to use those video footage. You know, so in a sense, the game becomes more expensive because it requires an extra license. And that was a big obstacle for Stern to deal with. And that's why it took them longer than other companies, I guess. Okay. So... No stab, no stab at Stern whatsoever, just trying to explain what I understood from management, what behind the scenes the big uh, hurdle was to take. Jonathan, I've made the connection between Wayne Nyans and Scott Denisi as, you know, someone who creates a game from scratch and every aspect of it, and you like to have those tie-ins. So as I look at the other feature article with Antoinette Johnson, I'm trying to make the connection, and I can only come up with uh, you, yourself, the editor, and uh, both with great hairstyles. Is that possibly it? Um, yeah, I wish you could do my. I wish you could do my hair, but <laughs> sadly, it's all gone. But I ran into Antoinette at the Texas Pinball Festival, uh, which we seem to be talking about a lot in this episode. But I thought she is amazing woman, and she has a very unique uh, hairstyle, which she is uh, known for. But I was instantly intrigued. Like, okay, so who is the woman behind the hair? 
And I figured, okay, while I'm here and she is here, let's do an interview. And that's what we did. And I do have a feature called uh, the essential website. And I took the liberty to expand that a little bit. So in the sense that I used to take a look at websites. And in this issue, I'm looking at what Jack Danger is doing with Deadflip and the streaming of Pinball because he's doing something that nobody was doing a couple of years ago. And I think he's basically the godfather of pinball streaming now. So I figured in the liberty of uh, being an editor, I figured that's making, okay, there's not a real close connection to Wayne Nyans, but Jack is pioneering, Wayne was pioneering. So if you want to look into that that way, that's fine with me. Other than that, and otherwise, I also needed current content in the sense I didn't want to make just a completely electromechanical pinball issue. Uh, because there's also people that like modern games, and I appreciate modern games. Heck, I bought Total Nuclear Annihilation, and I just ordered two more. So that's how much I like that game. Jack definitely is certainly at the forefront of streaming with what he does on a, a daily basis, too. And uh, I think you got to see him again recently at Vancouver Flipout. So you were not only there, you were speaking, and you had your magazine there, but also you were DJing, too, which had to be kind of fun. Yeah, it was, yes. So uh, Vancouver Flipout had the um, the premiere, so to speak, of me DJing at a pinball show. That was a first. Um, hopefully there will be uh, more uh, DJ gigs at pinball shows in the future because I really like doing it. And um, I've been DJing for 30 years, so it's not something that I picked up recently. But it was kind of funny. Tommy, who organizes Vancouver Flipout, last year had a different DJ. And I jokingly said to him, why didn't you book me? And he said, next year I will. And he did. I love people like that. Oh, really? All right, Tommy, book me next year, too, if you're taking offers. By the way, Jonathan, I joke about you and Antoinette and the hair comparisons, too. I'm a ginger, too, so I have no right to talk about anybody's hair. Well, that's I can handle it. It's not a problem. You know, I mean... It's a um, good look. I like it, yeah, and a lot of people copy me for it, so... You're a trendsetter. Well, I probably wasn't the first, but then again, I'm trying to keep up uh, the bold look, if you, if you if you want. I guess I have the hat for it. Let's put it like that. And Antoinette has a great hat to, to do these crazy hairstyles. And what's going to be interesting, Antoinette told me that Diane Ritchie, Steve Ritchie's wife, at some point Antoinette will do Diane's hair. I'm very curious how that will look. Oh, wow, that would be neat. Do Steve's while you're at it as well. <laughs> You've definitely been very busy, whether it's putting together this magazine, being in Vancouver and uh, getting to certain events. Uh, the coverage that you've done has been fantastic. But you're also now a podcaster as well, too. And you've done that over the last uh, little bit with your good friend Martin from Pinball News. Yes, we did. And um, I forgot actually how we got to it. I think I called Martin and said, like, hey, you want to do a podcast? Like, I, I'm sending out this newsletter every month anyway, so you want to talk about that? And he's like, yeah, sure, why not? And we're still doing it. We're getting very, very good response, and I think people call it the no-nonsense pinball podcast. So I guess that's a good thing. No, it is a good thing, because from what I've learned, people listen to podcasts for different things, and 
there might be people that never play in a tournament or a competition. So when you start talking about that, it's a big tune out factor. There are diehard collectors. Uh, there are people that are really into the technical side. There are people that like maybe all aspects. So there's different audiences for podcasts everywhere and they don't all align and nor should they, right? I mean, you get to pick and choose what you like. If it's a topic, if it's a person, if it's a subject, whatever the case may be. And what you're doing with Martin offers another different variation of, of what's available in pinball content. Right. Obviously, there's there's plenty of podcasts out there, but it's it's basically like pinball. There's all these different aspects, and you can have your own interest and and look for the games or the podcasts uh, which you like. So, and we enjoy doing it. We don't take it too seriously. Then again, we're not out there to spread any rumors or discuss our own opinions. We're just trying to stick with the facts and uh, maybe some scoops that we obviously we have both. A huge network in the in the pinball industry. We know a lot of people, and we hear a lot of things a long time before other people hear them. Sometimes we know stuff that we can't talk about, and sometimes things end up on the street not because of us. But once it's out there, then then we of course we can talk about it, and that's what we try to do. So the next question is: When is the next pinball magazine issue? And have you thought about? what you're going to do for that. I mean, I don't want to take away from this amazing issue number five, which is available on your website, pinball-magazine.com, but you've got a good thing going here. You must be thinking about the next one. Well, there's two options. Option A is I started on an issue on Python Angelo a couple of years ago, and I already have 181 pages of the cover story, of which I edited about 90 pages and the other 90 I was just getting too depressed and I figured I'm leaving that for now so I'm not looking forward to going back to that but at some point I need to finish it so that's option A Python Angelo and a lot of people have been waiting for that issue. Option B is I hear there's this this turn book that's supposed to be coming out that is taking longer and longer and longer and since I'm not working on a magazine right now maybe I can beat them to it. Are you being serious? Well, the thought has crossed my mind. I would give you an endorsement too, because, uh, I mean, what you've done in the magazines, I mean, like I say, I, I hate using the word magazine, but it, it obviously started off that way. These are real keepsakes and, and great timepieces too. I mean, it's not something you read once and toss away. I mean, this is a nice collective piece that you've created here. So, hey, you've got my ringing endorsement for that. Right. I'm not sure whether Sturm would agree because... Not um, after you just crapped on them for ripping off Scott Denisi, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, that wasn't a stab. That was just an observation. <laughs> I'm just bugging it. But uh, the but the thing is, what I understood, Turn really likes to heavily check everything that gets published about them. And when it comes to a magazine, if I would be doing a magazine like that, if you have a company that's in existence for 30 years, that's also a tough, uh, a few missteps that might have been made that maybe... They don't want to be addressed in such a book, but I would love to address them. Not to put them under a magnifying glass, but it's part of the company's history, you know. And you can't ignore that certain games were complete duds. Or to to dive into the history of why is this game... Well, I wouldn't ask, like, why is this game such a dud? But if there's a story behind the game and it turns out that it was designed in two months and they rushed it out the door like happened with a lot of games back in the day, then all of a sudden it makes more sense why the game is what it is. Being it good or bad, or that's, let's leave that 
up to everybody for the site uh, for themselves. But that's the interesting things that I would like to focus on. And I'm not sure whether Stern would let me. My guess is if Stern is going to be publishing a book about Stern celebrating their 30th anniversary or whatever year it will be by the time the book comes out, it will be more of a rah-rah piece, more of a marketing tool as opposed to a tell-all book. So you might have to go the other way and uh, do it yourself if that's really what's going to be uncovered there. And certainly, you know, from past forums and hearing interviews with some other employees, you know, obviously every company has uh, some disgruntled people. And, you know, oh, they, those they, are they, the best to talk to. <laughs> Seriously. I, I said, right. As long as you know that there's two sides to every story. That's all. I agree. Exactly. But but I, I've said that be, uh, no stab at the book that Stern is producing right now. But if you really want to get both sides of the story, so to speak, then don't just talk to the people that are currently working there. No, talk to everybody that was fired. Then you get the good stories. I kind of agree. <laughs> but so, um, I don't want to. I don't want to stir that pot. But go ahead, do it. <laughs> It'd be kind of funny. But again, people could do that about you. They could do that about me. So uh, they could do that. Well, but that, that's what happens if you're the tallest tree in the forest. You catch the most wind. Again, I recommend everyone pick up Pinball Magazine. And in fact, Jonathan has been very kind to send me one to give away to our great Pinball Profile audience. So how we'll do this is please send me an email at pinballprofile at gmail.com saying you would like this copy. I will take all the names and put them in a list and we'll do a random draw. But send me that email and we'll give somebody this great copy of this uh, Wayne Nyan's edition of Pinball Magazine. Jonathan, tell people how they can get their magazine. Right. So I have a website. We mentioned it a couple of times. Um, there's a web shop attached to it. Um, the link to that is uh, www.pinball-magazine.com slash shop. If you go there, you can order uh, Pinball Magazine number five or uh, most of the back issues except for issue two. I tried to set up an account with Amazon in order to make shipping more affordable or the purchase of the magazine more affordable because obviously I'm based in Europe. Many of my readers are based overseas, whether it is uh, North America or Australia and New Zealand even. And um, with this being a magazine that weighs 48 ounces, if I'm not mistaken, the postal costs are kind of through the roof. Now, when people get to the Pinball Magazine webshop, please note the default postal rate shown is the rest of the world rate, which is the most expensive. If you're in the US or in Australia and you enter your address details, a postal rate will change and usually it ends up being lower, less than what is displayed initially. But there's apparently a lot of people that are like, what? And then they are like, forget it, I'm not getting that. But if you actually take the effort to enter your address details, then you'll actually end up with the applicable postal rate instead of what's displayed initially. And about the Amazon thing, I tried to set that up. Turns out Amazon is applying so many fees that the magazine would be more expensive with Amazon than it would be in my own web shop. So I decided initially I told people like, wait for it and it will be on Amazon and it will be cheaper. No, for now I'm leaving that as it is. I don't see it going to Amazon anytime in the near future. So if you were waiting for Amazon, then please visit pinball-magazine.com slash shop. Okay, that makes sense too. You're actually doing it to save people money. It's not about the convenience factor. It's really so that the magazine is cheaper and I, I commend you on that. That's good. So also you want people to check out your monthly newsletter. Where do they go for that? 
Um, they can subscribe on uh, the Pinball Magazine website as well. On the right, there is a uh, small subscription form. If you're friends with me on Facebook or with Pinball Magazine on Facebook, I think there's a way to subscribe to that as well. And basically, it's a monthly update, a pinball industry recap of what happened in the world of pinball and then mainly the manufacturing part, the industry part. So we're talking about, okay, what's happening with Stern, what's happening with Jersey Jack, American Pinball, um, Home Pin, well, basically every company that's making pinball machines that's actually making pinball machines is, we try to cover them as long as there's news. So that's what I do. It's completely free. It's just once a month. I'm not trying to spam people. I just want to provide information. And a lot of people appreciate it because a lot of people don't have time to keep track with everything that's happening on Pinside or anywhere else in the industry uh, for that matter. Jonathan, thank you very much. All the best. Congrats again on Pinball Magazine number five. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks for having me. This has been your Pinball Profile. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. And please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And make sure you email me, pinballprofile at gmail.com, if you'd like a copy of Pinball Magazine. We'll do a random draw. I'm Jeff Teolis. Pinball Profile.